Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, recorded on September 25th, we talked with Scotty Greenwood about Canada-US relations. Scotty, welcome back. Thank you, Colin. It's amazing to be with you, and I'm sorry I wasn't with you last week in Banff. Uh, well, I look forward to the next time I do see you in person. Absolutely. Uh, amongst her other professional activities, Scotty has been the driving force in the Canadian American Business Council since leaving the U.S. government in 2001, in recent years as its CEO. She is also co-host with the Wilson Center's Canada Institute's director, Chris Sands, of one of my favorite podcasts, Canosa Street. Scotty's involvement in almost every aspect of our extraordinary relationship, be it trade and investment, the border, defense and security, climate, energy, and the environment, makes her an expert in the relationship. And there are a few who have been done more to improve that relationship since she came to Canada as chief of staff to then U.S. Ambassador Gordon Giffen during the second Clinton administration. Scotty and I have been friends since that time. We were also professional colleagues when I worked for McKenna Long and Aldridge that later integrated with Dentons, and I did that for almost a decade. What I admire about Scotty is her ability to imagine what should be and then to make it happen. She has both imagination and the ability to get it done. Scotty, we tend to put the Canada-US relationship into three big baskets, trade and investment, security and defense, energy and the environment. Both the border and climate intersect all three baskets. I'm going to go through each basket and ask you what you've learned about each, and then ask you what more needs to be done. Think of this as a kind of exit interview, as you mentioned, as global head of government relations for Manulife. Again, congratulations on the move. Thank you. I know I'm, it's a tall order I'm putting to you, but you are a superb communicator. So let's begin. Trade and investment. And in today's context, supply chains, critical minerals, and how to deal with protectionism on both sides of the border. Scotty. Right. Well, thank you so much, Colin. I love your podcast, and I have enjoyed working with you over the, these many years. Um, your newsletter is required reading. My Our little podcast, Canusa Street, so C-A-N-U-S-A Street, uh, has been a labor of love. Uh, but we're pretty niche compared to what you're doing here with Global Affairs. So I'm thrilled to be with you. Uh, trade and investment, your first question. Uh, Canada and the United States enjoy, I think everybody knows, uh, one of the most prosperous, productive relationships in the world. And there are good reasons for that. Uh, it's not just proximity, although that, of course, helps. Um, <clears throat> but it's also that we've been doing business with each other, together and with each other, for an awfully long time. Uh, the, I think the free trade agreements that, that we see now really date back to uh, World War I when Canada and the United States decided that producing food for our citizens um, required agriculture equipment and we couldn't, we were producing parts and pieces on both sides of the border. So we needed to have free trade in tractors, Colin, dating back all those years. And then fast forward to 1965. Uh, uh, you had the auto pact. And those tractors and then autos, uh, those were the precursors to what became the first largest and most successful trade arrangements um, in the world, really. And that's the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement, the NAFTA, and now what we have, uh, which is the successor to those, uh, the USMCA, or in Canada, the, um, what do you call it in Canada? I forgot. Cosma, Canada, U.S. Cosma, that's right. And in and yeah. in Mexico, it's T-Mex. Anyway, so in <laughs> terms of trade and investment, um, we've done quite well here in North America. We rely on each other. Um, our markets aren't totally open to each other, so we could get into some of the specific um, areas where we're not as open as we could be for the benefit of all of our citizens. But basically, the story on trade and investment is really a positive one. Uh, going back to those tractors in, in in the early part of the 1900s. No, and and that part. Now, in today's, you know, we've got protectionism on both sides of the border. We often on Canadian side talk about buy America, but there's also Canadian protectionism as well. These are two big issues, or the, the issues of protectionism. Something that the CABC has looked at. Now, uh, you know, reflecting on that, what 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 is the best way? 
that I guess I'll speak from Dane perspective that we we can be dealing with with this much of which starts at the kind of local level and moves to the state house and then all winds up in Congress. Our our uh, differences are not often on with the administration, although they were certainly with the Trump administration, but a lot of this stuff comes out of Congress. So any advice on how to deal with that? Well, that's right. And and you're right to say that protectionism exists not, not only in Canada and the United States, but really everywhere in the world. And so I think it's important to be uh, realistic that every jurisdiction has certain sectors that for its own reasons, it's going to protect no matter what. The, the way to deal with it in a Canada-U.S. context I think is to think about enlightened self-interest, right? So it used to be in the old days, Canada would come to the United States and say, golly, geez, we're your best friends. We're your closest partners, big allies. You should treat us better. And Canada pivoted in recent years. And that, that, that argument had some resonance, but at the end of the day, you know, Canada is a foreign country, right? And so what works better and what Canada has deployed, I think, effectively is here is what is a message that's sort of like this. Here it's why here is why it is in your self-interest, member of Congress from Indianapolis or wherever, to work with us in Canada on a tariff-free open basis because it creates job in your jobs in your district. It creates investment in your state. It is in your and by the way, wouldn't you rather do business with Canadians who basically share the same kind of values, wouldn't you rather do business with Canadians than with somebody on the other side of the world who, you know, is polluting the planet, doesn't treat their workers well, doesn't share your values, and is stealing your intellectual property, right? So it's more of, let's talk about enlightened self-interest. And I could I could say the reverse as well. The U.S. faces barriers in Canada that are not in the Canadian interest. But um, that that's how I would approach it, Colin. And, and largely, that is what the government of Canada and its business community does argue when it's down here. Now, you know, you, you've, you've introduced the whole idea of values-based trade, which I do think is becoming more ascendant. And I think we're going to see it also in the whole context of climate and carbon border adjustment taxes and things. Um, given if, if that's the, the, the way we're moving, again, uh, for Canada and the U.S., are we not better to try and do this together and come up with standards uh, just as we've done for auto emissions and things? That's exactly right. We are better together on almost everything. And the the kind of tricky thing uh, now with, with talking about values is uh, you want to be careful not to slide into the politicalization of um, sort of I'll, just the shorthand is woke versus anti-woke capitalism, right? Or woke versus anti-woke policies. If you can, in the vernacular, if you can stay away from that and just talk about what's good for business, what's good for our people, uh, that is easier to swallow in various jurisdictions and under various political uh, scenarios than if than if you get straight up into um, traditional ways we define values. Because people, you know, it's a divisive world. It's a divisive world right now, and people get their own um, curated streams of media, and so you've got to be able to cut through all of that and just talk at the most basic level, um, so that you don't get sideswept into politics. No, that's a good point because it's something that our politics are divided, but my impression is that yours are truly polarized, and you never know when you might tread on a mine. And we have to deal with with both sides of the aisle and uh, trade. Certainly when when you and I both started doing this, Republicans tended to be more pro free trade. The Democrats always a degree of protectionism. But now, certainly from observing the Canadian side there and the polling tells us that it's often the Republicans have become more protectionist. But it's not as if the Democrats become less protectionist. Well, everybody, everybody wants to take care of the home team. That's true everywhere in the world. It's true in all political parties. And the question is, what does that look like? And, you know, for the purposes of Canada, United States, when you think about defense uh, procurement, for example, Canada is part of the U.S. home team. The defense production sharing agreement, which goes way back to the 1950s, says that if you want to have a contract with the Pentagon, 
you're treated as a legal matter the same way you, a Canadian company, you're treated as a legal matter the same way an American company would be treated. And that is different than anyone else in the world. That is a benefit to Canada. It's a benefit to the United States. So defining the home team a little more broadly and to have a little more uh, northern part in it is uh, is good for Canada, the United States, and vice versa. Oh, I remember when we was there, we talked about the uh, uh, the safe, secure upper north. We're talking about oil and gas at the time coming from Alberta. That, uh, as you pointed out, there are other countries where they don't have the same standards in the Middle East and Venezuela uh, to make the case for why, if you needed energy, Canadian energy was safe and secure. Well, that's right. And, you know, Colin, there's there's something that I've been thinking a lot about, um, which is what are the what are the narratives we as Americans tell ourselves and and what and what do Canadians tell themselves about our place in the world? And and I've come up with this idea. I'll test it out on you. See what you think. Um, that that goes like this. We, we each tell ourselves a, a story that is. Has some truth, but doesn't have to be true forever. Uh, and it's different. So in the United States, we think of ourselves as a superpower, and we are a global superpower, but we're not necessarily the only superpower forever, right? And Americans just broadly don't necessarily appreciate the rise of China, as an example, uh, as a global economic force and a global force, uh, the rise of the global south, uh, the BRICS. Uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, the rise of those countries. So so the narrative we tell ourselves that doesn't, unless we work at it or care about it, isn't necessarily true, is that we'll always be a superpower, the only superpower. The And we need to think about that. We need to be self-aware about that and decide what does that mean in terms of our engagement with the world. What Canadians tell themselves that I don't think has to be true is we'll never be a superpower. And, you know, I think it's, you know, we're a middle power or we're a small power or we have proximity. And when I say this to Canadians, they say, of course, we're never going to be a superpower. And I think, OK, how do you define superpower? Because if you have resources, energy resources, fresh water, uh, if you have proximity to markets, if you have a, a country that is a magnet for immigration in a way that stimulates your economy, those are the makings of a superpower. And if you start thinking like you're a superpower and flexing that muscle, um, I, I think it could be very different. But Canada doesn't doesn't want to flex like that, Colin. I don't I don't know what it is psychologically, but um, I think both both of our countries, the U.S. could could use a little more perspective about other powers and Canada could be a little more aspirational, I think. No, it's it. There, I think there is a certain inferiority complex and I think it comes living next door, as Pierre Trudeau put it, to the elephant. And we described ourselves as the most, but I think that's not the case. Uh, I, I think you're quite correct. And I remember Stephen Harper saying, look, we we have energy. We could be an energy superpower, but it's hard to be one when your main market is the United States and you're, for reasons, uh, domestic reasons, unable to get pipelines to both our coasts. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, I think some of the, the challenges you're describing are actually made in Canada problems, not problems of the Canada-US relationship. Well, I think that's right. And I think what changed the dynamic for everybody was this terrible Russian invasion of Ukraine, the most recent one, uh, the, the war that is currently being fought in Europe, because suddenly energy became, and food, frankly, became weaponized. And something that Canada would never do, although it could do, is, for example, turn off the lights in New York City. Right. You think about the electricity relationship between our two countries. And so when I say superpower, why why is the U.S. a superpower? Partly it's because of the nuclear weapons, the weapons of mass destruction that are a deterrent that it never uses or we hope will never use again. Um, Canada has massive capability. Like turning off the lights to New York City if it wanted to. And of course, it wouldn't use it, but it could. But it never says that it could. Right. So the weaponization right. of energy, electricity, food, those are all new realities. Uh, well, they're not new realities, but they're, we're newly aware of them because of what's happening in Europe because of Russia. Um, but I only pointed out, not because I think Canada should you know, start going around uh, threatening things, but just to be aware of your own 
centrality uh, to the well-being of the United States and the world. Uh, Canada doesn't think of itself that way necessarily, and I think of Canada that way. Uh, but anyway, you're right. It's a it's a psychological thing, perhaps. No, oh, and I think you're, you're 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 right on, and that takes me to the defense and security side. I'll never forget a dinner party. Uh, Susan Rice was was then at Brookings, and their Canadian husband came over, and she said to me at one point, she said, "You know, we, our longest border is with you, not with Mexico. Um, we can never let you go unprotected because you're the back door." And this goes back to, of course, something that Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, was sagely observed, and I think that's part of what going back to the 30s, which led to him saying to, to Mackenzie King, "Yes, we will give you access, but you've got to help us on the defense and security side." And something we don't always appreciate is that we really are important to American defense and security, uh, but do we take it as seriously as we should? Certainly, consistently, the last few administrations have been pushing us to do more on NORAD renewal. And my guess, and I put it to you, Scotty, is that that's in part because of that observation of Franklin Roosevelt, that if you want to protect the perimeter, you've got to have Canada part of that. Well, exactly right. And it's acute now, Colin. And where you see it, where I see it the most um, is in the Arctic. So the Arctic waters, as we know, are becoming navigable. Um, and Russia is an Arctic power. China's domain awareness under the sea ice in the Arctic is something that should be troubling to every Canadian, let alone American. China is calls itself a near Arctic power. As you know, Colin, it wants to be an observer in the Arctic Council. Um, and so when you think about NORAD, uh, when you think about defense and security, you have to think about Arctic capability. And what would Canada do if its sovereignty were challenged at the northern and in the Arctic Ocean. What would it do? What is its capability? And that worries Americans, and it and it should worry. It worries some Canadians. I was just at a, at a gathering uh, with some very senior military leadership from both countries, and this this was the topic, Colin. And so I I don't know that uh, Canadians think that way. I don't know that they perceive global threats, but the um, the back door is kind of wide open. Right now, and and I think I think some real thought needs to be given to how would you approach um, the Arctic from a defense and security point of view. Not to mention, by the way, the environmental and ecological challenges with protecting that pristine part of the part of the Earth, which is also incredibly important. So the threats are not just from other countries, but they're also from what's happening in the planet and you know, the Arctic is, I think, neglected as a policy area. I'll just I'll just hasten to add here, Colin, and then I'll I'll see what you think. But the place that makes the most sense from my way of thinking to shoring up the Arctic um, is Churchill, Manitoba. It's if you think if you think about a map and if your listeners will Google Churchill, Manitoba, they'll see that it sits kind of in the middle of Canada, up north on the western shore of the Hudson Bay. And it has the infrastructure required to support big efforts. It has a railroad that connects it. It has a large landing strip. It has a port. It has a grain elevator. Uh, and it has it has a wonderful community of about 800 people there. And some of the best espresso I've had, Colin, is at the Lazy Beer Lodge <laughs> in Churchill, Manitoba. So, um you know there are there are big challenges with operating and trying to operate in the north um and some of them are how do you build a port how do you build a landing strip up on permafrost well you know what you stage from churchill you invest in churchill you think about churchill and use that as your land launching point to the north just as the us and canada did again back uh during the world wars the infrastructure's there uh so that's my that's my pitch on defense and security it's Think about the Arctic and start by spending time in Churchill. Because, of course, there's other areas. You know, the, the U.S., the Indo-Pacific, uh, the Quad, AUKUS, and Canada's new strategy, although it's uh, harder to do when you, the two biggest countries, India and China, the relationships are on the rocks. But uh, their relationship with Europe through NATO, uh, and then, of course, there's NORAD. Prioritization is always an issue, and there's only so much that that Canada can do, 
So are what you are what you're saying, Scotty, is that from an American perspective, what you've observed and the people you've talked to, what we should be focusing on in Canada is yes, we've got our NATO commitments, and yes, we've we've said we'll do more in the Indo-Pacific, but from an American perspective, again, going back to that open back door you talked about, the Arctic is where we should be putting our our emphasis. Uh, from my point of view, uh, it is in Canada's interest to have cap- really solid capability in the in the north, uh, and that would that would benefit Canada directly. Uh, that would also give Canada more standing vis-a-vis the United States and other partners. Um, so yes, I think it. I happen to think it should be one of the top priorities, and that involves Colin a lot of. That that has a lot of implications. It means you have to have a constellation of satellites up above the north so that you can communicate. And there are some satellites there, but you've got to you've got to think about how do you organize um, that effort. It means you've got to have icebreakers. It means you've got to have um, a presence up there, which again, it's it's not easy. Uh, it's not like you can just um, head up to Rankin Inlet and set up shop. Um, you've got to really be thoughtful. And here's something that Canada, I think, understands well. Um, but but you've got to do your engagement and your development in a way that involves the people that live there. And in the case of the North, that's, you know, the Arctic peoples. And that's something you've got to, you, you can't just sort of steamroll in there uh, like like the Avatar movie. You've got to, you've got to work uh, closely uh, with with the actual people that that have lived there forever, so that's a, that's a big piece of it too. Now, the Avatar movie I remember when it first came out caused us great problems up in the oil sands or tar sands, as they were originally called, and that, that that's a campaign that you worked on that takes you back to because energy security is also part of defense security. Do you think that we are are managing our resources, oil, gas, nuclear, or uranium? I guess could put at critical minerals as well as we should? Well, I, I think, uh, again, I think we're blessed here in North America with an abundance of resources that we need. We have rigorous standards for developing those resources. What we lack is um, a, an, an environment for permitting of projects, for example, that gives the investment community any kind of certainty or confidence that it can actually build a a needed piece of infrastructure. And I think in the case of critical minerals, which are, um, you know, the elements that are needed in many of the carbon transition technologies, so electric vehicle batteries, solar panels, wind turbines, in in the case of critical minerals, uh, we need them a lot. They exist all over the world, actually, but they're processed mostly uh, in Indonesia and China. And so I think Canada in particular um, has a real opportunity to introduce some certainty in terms of uh, the timing of approval of projects. I think the the deal, the basic deal, Colin, should be if you, as a as a proponent, a project proponent, adheres to the to the top environmental standards, engages in meaningful uh, collaboration with Indigenous and First Nations, meets all of the requirements of transparency. Uh, you should have the ability to get your project approved um, within a reasonable period of time. And right now, uh, the period of time is 20 years to never. There's, you know, and so uh, long way of saying, Colin, I think I think we could do better. And I, the reason I put it on Canada instead of the United States is Canada has, as you know, a parliamentary system uh, that enables decisions to be made. Uh, that is more efficient than the U.S. system. Canada also has more open geography, right? Most of the Canadian population lives right along the Canada-U.S. border. So you've got sort of a whole lot of open space with infrastructure, railroads, deep water ports, you know, uh, airports, things like that, and a workforce that knows a heck of a lot about engineering. Um, So anyway, Canada has a ton of natural advantages, from its political structure to everything else. So I think Canada has an opportunity and I think it's it's uh, slower than molasses in January to seize that opportunity, Colin. No, and, and Scotty, you raise a good point because it always, it is baffling when you think the way you've just laid it out that we do have 
so many natural advantages. Uh, again, the open space, the engineering capacity, and the need to do it. But it does seem that, comparatively speaking, it is much easier to get things done in the United States, bigger population, and also, and again, but with with high standards on the environment than it is in Canada. Is that a is that something you've observed as well? It it just seems I know it's frustrated. Uh, certainly a lot of our resource companies in, in terms of being able to to get things done. But I, I, I what you're saying is comparatively, we really are at a disadvantage vis-a-vis, say, the United States. I don't know. I, I actually think it's really hard to get anything done in the United States. It's funny. Canadians look at the U.S. and say, geez, they have a can-do attitude. But when you think about big infrastructure projects, it's really hard in both countries. I just think it's relatively easier to solve. It's not easy. But it's relatively easier to solve in Canada if Canada had the desire to do it. If there was a national consensus about Canada, again, wanting to be a superpower on any of these areas, it could be. It just has to decide to do it. And uh, the U.S. is is much more, you know, power is diffuse. It's fraught. We're litigious. You know, we're our our system, our constitutional system is designed for inefficiency. Colin, as you and I are recording this today on September 25th. The U.S. federal government is probably going to shut down uh, this weekend. That's that's probably going to happen. And we were designed for inefficiency. Canada has a system that is much more efficient, especially if there's a majority government. It you know you can get stuff done. So why not do it? So it's basically up to us. You're saying that one. No one issue I want to talk about because both of us have spent time on these are pipelines. Of course. Is, is, there's like a spaghetti bowl full of pipelines that crisscross the border. I think when I last talked to Gary Dewar, he usually keeps track. I think we were about up to 80. But mm-hmm. two particular pipelines have become highly condemned, particularly the XL and, and Line 5. Um, have we handled these as well as we could? Or what is it about pipelines, particularly in the United States, that sets off all the, the alarm bells when, in fact, as, as you and I both know, having read the State Department reports about what is the safest way to transport oil and gas, it's through a pipeline, not through rail, not through a truck. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, I th- it's a it's a complicated one, Colin, because the argument, you know, a couple of decades ago that the environmental community was making was nobody is taking the threat of climate change seriously. So we have to do increasingly dramatic things in order to get people's attention. Right. That was. And now. So so the environmental community in many ways did a service to the world by focusing people's attention on. Uh, on how we need to change our human behavior in order to to continue to, to have generations and generations that live on this planet uh, in a safe and healthy way. So so I don't want to I don't want to be overly critical because because they're right. Uh, on that. But where I do have a disagreement is exactly what you said, Colin, which is, okay, if you accept that we have to have a transition from carbon, then you get to the point of, okay, well, in the meantime, as we are transitioning to a lower carbon future, what is the most responsible way to develop and transport resources that we need for our everyday life? And the answer to that, um, when you're thinking about oil and gas, is for sure pipelines. And does it make sense to upgrade pipelines so that they're more safe, less prone to catastrophe, um, more efficient? Of course it does. Um, And can you do that at the same time that you're committed to the environment? I believe you can. But but, But what has happened is any single project, you could stop. So actually, you mentioned Ambassador Gary Dewar, our mutual friend. He is talking about this idea that why don't we have a consensus about our need in North America to have certain infrastructure and not really not really allow the debates to be on one-off projects. Because on, on any one-off project, uh, you know, the, the naysayers can win the day. They what they won the day on the Keystone XL pipeline, even though um even though it you know once once energy became weaponized uh, with the with the Russian war in Ukraine, people thought, well it would have been good if we had built that pipeline. Yep. Would have been better because then you decrease reliance on the bad guy energy, you increase interdependence with good guy energy. I say that flippantly, but it's true. But it's too late, too late for that. So we'll see what happens. The the other one um, 
is the Enbridge project uh, in Michigan, and that became very political. Uh, and so it's not that the, in the industry needed to be, I think, more self-aware and more open uh, a couple of decades ago so that it didn't have to be forced into uh, the position it's in now. Um, but, but, but here we are, and I think, I think the environmental community and the industry need to really have conversations with each other about what is the most responsible way to both power our economy and transition into a cleaner future. And, you know, those are different tables, Colin. They're different. You and I have been at those, both of those tables. They're not only are they different tables, but they're at different conferences. They're in different rooms uh, in different cities. And uh, the, the two sides, and there's more than two sides, of course, but the two big camps barely engage with each other. They talk to themselves. They don't talk to each other. And that's a problem. No, oh, and it's interesting because, as you say, in the pipeline infrastructure, we seem to have done, uh, and often by simply leaving it to the private sector, working with the, the state and provincial level, things like grids, which are kind of divided up west coast, center, east coast. Um, and yet, and we have had lights out at one point, I think it was a fire plant in Ohio, which shut down the west coast. You talked about turning off the lights in New York. But again, you work this through because we look at this as a kind of joint project. It takes me to the, the environment and the International Joint Commission and how we've managed water uh, in the Great Lakes in particular, uh, as well as the various other rivers where there have been disputes. That uh, This dates back over a century. It seems to me that the approach you're suggesting, which is to take a kind of look at the big picture rather than looking at the individuals, is the way we've made progress in North America. I mean, free trade agreement, which covered everything, instead of just focusing on, on one little piece. Well, well, that's exactly right. And and the other example in water is is a treaty that's being updated now, uh, behind the scenes, uh, very diligently. Uh, the Columbia River Treaty, which yes. is which affects the what we in the U.S. call the Pacific Northwest. In Canada, uh, it's just the West. Uh, but but the Columbia River Treaty, uh, like the International Joint Commission, has been around for many decades and seeks to have a common understanding about a common watershed between Canada and the United States. And the thing about it is, you know, we have to be able to have real conversations about, about look, human beings living on Earth are going to have an impact. It's just how it is. So you can't, nothing is completely um, pristine if you're going to, if you're going to live and exist uh, in, a, in an area. But there are lots of things you can do to try to protect the watersheds and to um, not just the not just the the health of the watershed, but the flow of the water. And what is it? What is it used for? Is it used to create electricity? Is it used to for agriculture purposes? Is it used to drink? Is it used for recreation? Like these are all you know essential factors. And you know the an interesting thing, Colin, in thinking about this is often. The U.S. and Canada are pretty well integrated north-south, you know, whether it's the electricity grid or the watershed. But, but like in Canada, for example, the provinces and the federal government don't necessarily agree with each other. The provinces, you know, there there are interprovincial barriers to trade. There's interprovincial. Uh, there there isn't an east-west grid connection, let alone pipelines, let alone water agreements. Right? That all tends to be north-south. So, um, in some ways, we get it. We get it. You know, we have these structures to get it right in Canada, U.S., uh, that sort of in between our own states and provinces, we've got it, and, some, and in some ways we need to improve. No, you're certainly your point about interprovincial trade. And gosh, this is, to me, the unfinished business of confederation. As you say, we, we did a free trade agreement with the United States and better mobility for professions uh, between U.S. and Canada than we have between provinces. So, yes, you point to, again, a problem that is kind of neat in Canada. On the Columbia River Treaty, because when I was in Banff last week, our mutual friend, uh, Matt Morrison, CEO of the Pacific Northwest Economic Region, which is one of these regional associations, which I think works brilliantly. I agree. Uh, probably is the kind of model for what we could be doing in other parts. And I, I, I do think, uh, but he, he's, he uh, sort of raised a flag saying, look, this is taking uh, longer than we expected, and there's still a long ways to go. What's your read on the Columbia River since you've raised it? 
Well, you're right. I've learned, uh, I became aware of the Columbia River Treaty negotiations a couple of years ago because of the work of Matt Morrison and his wonderful organization that you and I both benefit from their their thought leadership and their convening. Um, he's, he's not wrong. It's taking a long time. And uh, even though it's regional, it does have uh, national and international implications. We have to be able to get these, we have to we in Canada, United States have to be able to work through something like the Columbia River Treaty if we have any hope of, you know, updating these other thornier issues, things that are even more difficult, like NORAD modernization, like the softwood lumber uh, agreement, which is perennial, a perennial uh, dispute, like, like what is going to happen when our USMCA COSMA um, is reviewed and, and you know, has has disputes associated with it. So so we've Columbia River Treaty is important in its own right, uh, but it's also important as a moniker for how are we going to do business together um, on an issue that affects a lot of people in both sides of the border and affects uh, the environment, business, industry, agriculture, all of it. We got to be able to get it right. And Matt, Matt Morrison is right. It's taking forever. We we actually did a couple of episodes on this, Colin, on Canusa Street, the podcast that Chris Dans and I have, and we have a standing offer to the U.S. negotiator on Columbia River, and she hasn't agreed yet, but hopefully she will. We have a Canadian negotiator, Sylvain Fabi. Yes, I uh, heard that episode. So that you're dealing with the right issues, which takes me to another big issue that you and I both have worked on. You worked on when you were here at the embassy, and that's the border, constantly trying to make it as accessible as possible. And I remember you and, and Ambassador Giffen working on this and it was at the Canada US partnership and we've had and we you know we've had various iterations, the Smart Border Accord, uh, the catalytic event of 9-11, I think, which John Manley and Tom Ridge did. But this has been an abiding concern, I know also for the CABC through the years you've been with it. Yeah, that's right, Colin. And you know, um Here's here's how I think about the Canada-U.S. border. After 9-11, uh, our countries made progress, uh, a lot of progress year over year in how we manage our, our joint border. And, and you mentioned the Smart Border Accord. There were several, the Ship Rider Program. And we kept getting better and better and better at managing our border, sharing information, cross-training, joint programs. We just, it, 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 it wasn't a perfect sort of straight lineup, but it, but it was a good trajectory um, in the right direction from, from September 11th, uh, 2001 until 2019, until COVID. And then the decision was made to close the common border to non-essential traffic. And that decision was made very efficiently as well. It was, I think, in about three days, our two federal governments came together and in a coherent, well-reasoned, you know, approach, they announced what was going to happen with the border. And, and that was all positive. And then what happened subsequently during those years of COVID is our policies started to diverge, um, whereas we had spent a good 20 years figuring out how to collaborate with each other because of this public health threat, um, COVID, jurisdictions sort of had permission to do whatever they needed to do to protect their population, right? So all of a sudden, a state, a province, a city, a national government would say, I'm going to make some rules about who can come and go, what kind of information do they need, what does their quarantine need to be, what are the restrictions? And so we saw the two Canada United States border policies really diverge. And Colin, I they they're not back. We're not synchronized again. We need to get back to a place where our border services agencies uh work together and have political guidance that says work together, trust each other, you know, let's get back to a perimeter approach to North America as opposed to this barrier between us. Um, but we are not there. And and I think we're further apart in we, Canada and the United States, in how we manage our common border than we've been in more than 20 years. And that does worry me. And that's a that's that's an ongoing issue for the Canadian American Business Council. And the reason for that is it affects our prosperity because our economies are so integrated, and it also affects people. We, you know, it's not just an economic issue. Um, it's families that are, you know 
ha have grandparents on one side or the other, have property on one side or the other, vacation or, or go to summer camp on one side or the other. So it's, it is a business issue and it's important in the economy. It is also a personal and a family issue. And it's something that our countries aren't getting right, do, doing it right right now. And there's no political pressure for them to do it right. So I, I worry about that quite a lot. Scotty, you know, you've just described, because you've worked on a whole series of campaigns with the CABC on issues in the big baskets, you know, whether we're talking critical minerals, or the border, or pipelines, and um, you know, that, that, that is uh, the, some of this, the, the, the approaches you've come up with, I think, have been excellent, if not always heated. But it is something that is part of the glue that keeps, I think, the relationship going is having organizations like the CIBC make the case uh, and, and be creative and come up with solutions. Um, what are your sort of lessons or takeaways for minding the border uh, or tending the garden, as George Schultz put it? Yeah, well, we, we, we are heated a lot, maybe not uh, as quickly or to the extent, but I feel I feel like we do uh, we do we are able to make our points heard, uh, we were able to create enough ruckus about the Nexus, which is the Trusted Traveler program, uh, to make sure that that thing didn't die on the vine, which it was at risk of doing. So, I, you know, we, we take a little bit of comfort in making making some progress where we can. I, I think the big lessons, you know, I'm, I've got some songs going through my head, you know, Katy Perry, fireworks, like Canada should um, aim higher, I think. Uh, and the U.S. said in Vancouver, the, yeah. the Whistler, instead of the, the perennial saying, oh, if we get bronze, we're happy. That's right. That's right. It's not good enough to be on the podium, but uh, lead the podium. That's right. So I, I think Canada um, itself is um, bigger, more important, more influential than it realizes. Uh, and uh and it, and I think it should lean into that. Um, and I think it should create leverage for itself, whether that's in becoming a world leader in processing of critical minerals, whether it's in uh, defense in the Arctic, uh, whether that's in food security for the world. Canada um, could could play a much bigger role than it imagines for itself. Um, so that's one lesson. And the U.S., um, you know, we got we got to get our acts together internally, Colin. I mean, what can I say? We're Again, we're about to shut down the federal government because because members of one political party can't agree with each other, let alone the other political party on on funding priorities. So so we we have some work to do on our democratic uh, system here in the United States, and uh, I hope I hope that cool heads prevail and that and that and that we're able to have a more organized way to govern ourselves. Um, because it's important, but those are those are my big lessons. And if you can do those things better, um, you have a framework in which to resolve uh, disputes. You know, you and I have another mutual friend, Ambassador David Jacobson, the former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, yes. uh, and he, you know, he's with BMO now, um, and he's he's a smart guy. And he says, if we can get the big things right, the little things will take care of themselves. And by that, he was talking about. Uh, I think the context for that was NATO. If Canada, you know, lives up to its stated commitments in things like NATO, then it gives it the credibility and the standing to to work through the smaller things. But if you don't get the big things right, it's really hard to solve the small things. They they continue to nibble away at you. So that's that's kind of my takeaway. Yeah, no, and I, and I think you've underlined something here that Canadians don't always appreciate. We tend to put sort of trade investment as the top priority when we come to the states, but my uh, certainly my experience is that from an American perspective, and part of it is being the superpower, it's about security and defense first. Well, yeah, you've got to be safe. And if if you live under the umbrella of the protection of the United States and you feel like you're fine with just having the U.S. protect you, then don't whine about sovereignty. But if you want if you want to flex your muscle and get your way at certain things, then you've got to step up and you've got to have the capability to uh, defend yourself and to live up to your global commitments to your allies. Scotty, uh, we've had one Trump administration. There is the possibility there will be a second. Oh, dear um, God. What should we be doing to prepare? Because, again, it, our most important relationship, our proponent relationship is that with the United States. 
uh, I think say prayers, light candles. <laughs> I, you know, I don't mean to be partisan here, Colin. Um, uh, the Canadian American Business Council is not partisan, and I work with people in both parties. But the 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 Trump era was challenging in many ways, and and it's become more challenging. It became more challenging on his way out of office. Um, the basic that's when I said we have work to do here in the United States about basic respect uh, for our institutions, the peaceful transition of power. Those are things that we need to we need to get that right here in the United States and and Canada, um, you know, can't do much about it. Maybe lead by example, I guess. I don't know, but the, not that the U.S. is paying attention to anyone but but ourselves. Um, so no, I don't know what you can do um, to prepare except the things we've talked about, which are true regardless of who the president of the United States is or who wins an election, which are uh, to develop your own capability. Um, and be willing to flex your muscles. Yeah, and I think certainly something I've observed is that it's not the great leap forward. It's it's more incremental, step by step, and it's it's hard work. But but having a vision is vital, as you've underlined. But then it's just the hard work and and getting the people together, as you're referring to the border, for example, getting the, the both sides to talk to one another. Because certainly in talking to people back in the 40s and 50s around the border, for example, these people knew each other. They were friends and neighbors. And so it was past friend pass, as Franklin Roosevelt put it. And then it became bureaucratized and much more complicated. And and yet we, of all countries, should be able to work this out. We should be able to work it out. And and one, let me, let me say something positive um, here about the Trump era. We did negotiate the new free trade agreement. That was an accomplishment. And it was better than the old one. So you got to give credit for that. And Canada's approach to that, I think, was pitch perfect, actually, Colin. If you'll remember, countries around the world were flipping out about the America first language that they were hearing from the from the president. And the president meant every word of it. And he, uh, you know, he backed it up. Right. Uh, This America first rhetoric is something that he believes in and was true to his word on that. And that posed a huge problem to every country that we do business with. And Canada laced up its skates in a nonpartisan, federal, provincial, municipal, all of society approach, engaged the United States in thinking about us as a trading block and did extraordinarily well um, in that engagement. So, you know, Canada will be just fine. I hope it doesn't have to have a near-death experience like we experienced um, with the free trade agreement in the last administration. But if it does, you know, Canada will be ready. Yes, and of course we are. There will be a review of the uh, uh, Smacker or Cosma in 2026, and the preparations are already beginning on that. Anything from the CABC perspective that. Uh, we should be thinking about now, as you pointed out, preparation, preparation, preparation. Well, right. I think the important thing and something the American Business Council does on a regular basis is continue to remind Canadians, Americans and Mexicans about the value of the agreement. Like it is much better to have a referee on the ice than to have no referee and have a free for all. Right. And so the, the trade agreement is the referee on the ice. We've got to make sure that it works. And We've got to remember um, how beneficial this tariff-free trade is for for all of us. And so, reminding of ourselves of the importance of the agreement, how we benefit from it, uh, I, I think is is a good exercise, and that's something that we engage in on a regular basis. The dispute settlement side of things, you know, we both, I think, uh, all partners try to evade their, their what what they're supposed to be doing. We on things like uh, uh, dairy. Uh, the United States, of course, we're always critical about on things like as it relates to uh, our auto trade and and sometimes on soft and lumber. And Mexico, of course, has been, uh, I think, uh, dragging the puck on uh, on energy. Um, yeah. That is that. How worried should we be, or just accept this? Is this is just a natural part of doing the business? We we've tried to make this dispute settlement as good as possible. It's not perfect, but it's it's there. Yeah, I, the the latter. I think it is what it is. I think we've got to, you know, um, on on the auto dispute where Canada and Mexico take issue with the U.S. the way the U.S. calculates rule, you know, origin. Sure, rule of origin, yes. That's right. Um, 
you know, there, there's a scenario where um, the U.S. has a has a formula for calculating origin of its parts. Uh, Canada and Mexico took issue with that formula. Canada and Mexico won. So the U.S. needs to implement a new plan. It can't just pretend that it didn't, you know, that that didn't happen. <laughs> so I think if the U.S. wants to enforce uh, rulings when it wins um, against against Canada on dairy or Mexico on genetically modified corn or whatever the case may be, the U.S. itself has to um, accept it when it when it loses as it as it did on on this auto rule of origin content. So I think we all got to play by the rules, Colin. Um, and if we if we lose, we lose. If we win, you know, we got to be able to enforce it. So but that's just you're never going to have total agreement, you know, um, peace and harmony on the trading front. That, that won't happen. So what you got to do is just play by the rules, in my view. Good advice. Play by the rules. After all, the U.S. and nation of, of laws and, and Canada and the U.S. both believe in rule of law and, and rules based system. That's so, right. Scotty, um, thank you for all you've done for Canada-U.S. relations and will continue to do. I know in your, your new capacity, uh, you really have made a difference. And I personally want to thank you for that. And then I might conclude by asking you, what are you reading or streaming these days? Well, thank Colin, thank you. Thank you for your leadership, your insights, your friendship. I learn so much every time we're together, and I'm just honored to spend time with you. Uh, what I'm reading right now is The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer. And my daughter, Grace, recommended it to me. And the reason I'm reading it is it's about cross-cultural understanding in a business setting. And as you mentioned, I'm going into a new global portfolio uh, for Manulife, and we'll be spending a fair amount of time in Asia. And so I need, to, I need to study and learn as much as I can about different regions of the world, because as much as I focus on Canada and the United States, uh, my world is just about, is about to get a lot bigger, and I, uh, I want to try to navigate it as best I can. Well, if anybody can navigate anything uh, well, it is you, Scotty. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks, Colin. Great to be with you. We are joined today by Scotty Greenwood. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Thanks go out to our producer, Joel Calnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. If you like the show, do give us a rating. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.